Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. All right. Glad you can join us on I Am Dad podcast, period. Or maybe I should put the period before podcast because it's I Am Dad, period podcast right any way you want to say it if you hear you in the right place i'm your host kenneth braswell and i'm going to be with you for the next 30 minutes or so um bringing you the most innovative perspective uh from deep thought leaders and people who are uh, trying to do this work around responsible fatherhood telling stories telling narratives um, and bringing people that I know from around the country that are doing phenomenal things um, with not only dads, but families as well. And particularly working with um, dads um, in our communities, particularly communities of color. And so this guest that I have coming up is a good, good friend of mine. Um, he is a brother. He is involved um, in many things that I am involved in, and I try to keep him close um, to my vest because his voice is authentic. Um, his voice is innovative. His voice is inspiring. Um, and I, I can't tell you how many um, compliments I get about you, Dr. Perry, and people wanting to steal you from like, nah, that's my dude. <laughs> so I got to keep him close to me. And so Dr. Perry um, is a professor and director of the BSW program at the University of Louisville's Kent School of Social Work. Um, he teaches Introduction to Social Work. Um, his research areas include fathers' involvement in the lives of their children, leading them to co-edit. I think that's what that says. I don't know if that word is right, leading them to co-edit. If it does right, you got to explain to me what that means. Um Oh, no, no, that's a book. Wait a minute. Let me take that back. And so Dr. Perry's research includes uh, father's involvement in the lives of their children, leading him to co-edit. Got it. All right. Leading him to co-edit fatherhood in America, social work perspectives, and a change in society, a comprehensive edited volume addressing the micro and macro factors shaping paternal involvement. He is also a fellow um, with us in the Monahan Institute for Fatherhood Research and Policy. He is a good friend. Um, he is deep in this work. I introduce to you today, Dr. Armand Perry. How you doing, sir? Good, Kenny. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm having fun doing this part. I've been wanting to do it for years and years and years. And I was like, you know what? The only way you're going to do it is do it. Stop talking about it. Um, just do it. Um, and I come across so many great voices across this country and doing this work. And I'm like, man, I would love to just talk to you for a little bit. And what I'm finding now, and I also know this with you, um, is I get into these conversations and we get deep in the conversations like, man, I got to bring you back because we just scratched the surface of what we're talking about. And so I know that's going to happen um, with you as well. Um, so there's no shortage of conversation to have around this work around responsible fatherhood, um, black men and families and the children and, and communities that love them. I want to introduce to people um, your book because you wrote a book not too long ago called Black Love Matters, Authentic Men's Voices on Marriages and Romantic Relationships. And there's a couple of things that I want to talk to you about and bring you back to talk about um, that we won't be able to touch on today. Um, one of those things is the importance of research as it relates to black fathers in particular. Um, the other, and the other conversation is um, the intersect between responsible fatherhood and child welfare. And so we won't be able to touch on those today, but we will definitely come back to dig deeper into those subject matters. Um, but today we're talking about black love 
um, and we're kind of pulling some things from his book. Um, we're going to talk about at the end how you can purchase his book. Um, it is a great read. I keep continuing to find little nuggets in it that adds to my narrative. But talk to me a little bit about what inspired you to write this book. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. And I really appreciate the kind words in the open. That was, yeah, I, that was, I think in a lot of ways, that's just an affirmation on why it is we do the work. And so being able to to to, to be in the arena, I think is important. And and seeing that other people are acknowledging the work is, is, is gratifying. So I, I certainly appreciate that. Uh, and it goes without saying at the time, you throw me the alley-oop, I'm gonna be there to try to catch the lob. So, um, so, so, so anytime. As far as the, the Black Love Matters, I think what was what was happening there was, um, as you mentioned in the open, my, my job is as a researcher, so I, I collect data, analyze data, uh, social science data, which is all about two things. One, trying to explain, and two, predict human behavior. And so in reviewing a lot of the research on Black families, what was happening, Kenny, was I was finding this really, really disturbing trend where the only time black men were being mentioned was when people could implicate them in discussions about what was wrong with the family. Mm. Right. And so, I, I, again, I, I found that alarming. I found it troublesome. I found it problematic or any other sort of word you want to attached to it. But uh, it just, um, as the young people say, it, it made me feel away. Because um, I'm a social worker by trade, and so we've been working with men and working with dads, disproportionately uh, men of color, uh, for quite some time now. And what I was seeing in the research literature wasn't matching what it was I had seen with my own eyes in terms of actual engagement with people on the ground. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that sort of deficit framing that is all too common, I think, in social science literature. I think what was happening in the, the, the combination of the deficit framing in social science research and pop culture has sort of created this uh, reinforced narrative that uh, suggests that black men aren't interested in stable relationships, aren't interested in marriage. Um, aren't any good, uh, uh, don't have any interest or ability to, to maintain stable and long-lasting, fulfilling relationships. And that just wasn't what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing that happened was, and you may remember this several years ago, uh, there were people, sort of celebrity status type people, putting out what they were calling relationship books. And when I was reading through those things, they struck me as just a world according to them. Mm -hmm. um, rather than anything that was empirically based or anything that was grounded in the lived experiences of just regular people, you know. So long story, a little bit shorter. So I set out to examine some of these issues on my own, uh, connecting with, as the subtitle of the book mentions, authentic men and lift up their voices and, and get firsthand accounts from them about how or whether they were experiencing relationships and marriage. And so I followed a group of guys for over four years, tracing the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows in their relationships and their marriages, um, tracing what it was they felt about those relationships, um, but more importantly, what were the circumstances surrounding their thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, so that we can then sort of contextualize those things and provide a backdrop for how it is that black men love and want to be loved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, um, you know, one of the things that I've been paying attention to is, you know, I'm a, I'm a social media communication, marketing, imagery, branding person by nature, not by profession, by nature. I'm just curious about how things look, what they look like, how they interpret it, how you say something, what you say, what it looks like, all of those kinds of things. And when you talk about um, black love in particular is interesting because whenever you speak about love in context to black men, it's always sexual. It's mm -hmm. not emotional, right? Did you tend to see that theme in the conversations you were having with your men around how they define love? Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting is the, I think it's the, it's the third chapter in the book. 
And in the third chapter of the book, we talk about black men and their relationships. And we feature a center, the role that sex plays. And what was, for me, one of the more interesting and revelatory findings of the book is that the men were really, really clear in their interest and their pursuit of intimacy that was separate and distinct from sex, mm-hmm. right? So now to be clear, now I'm not suggesting that the men weren't saying that they were interested. Like the men wanted, like, you know I mean, with their partners, they wanted to have sex, but they were also able to articulate the ways in which intimacy uh, sometimes involves sex, but was also something that was independent from sex and distinct from sex in certain ways. And so they were able to clearly articulate their interest, their want, their desire for intimacy uh, that didn't always revolve around or wasn't exclusive to this idea of, of sex and sexual intercourse. So again, that was something that I didn't, I didn't think I would have uh, guessed going into the project, but it was something I think was a really, really uh, revelatory finding for me and I would imagine for other people who read the book as well. Well, media is an interesting kind of backdrop to this conversation. Um, I love to examine fatherhood and black families and, and black relationships through the imagery that we've seen over the decades um, as it relates to um, black cinema or black TV in general. And I always used to kind of talk about how, you know, back in the 60s of TV shows like um, Dick Van Dyke, um, All in the Family, I Love Lucy, The Flintstones, um, and several other shows um, when they depicted marriages in those shows. Um, it was rare that they ever showed a scene in the bedroom. But whenever they showed a scene in the bedroom, there were always two beds. Even in a marriage, there were always two, two beds. If you remember, I Love Lucy, and they slept in separate beds, All in the Family, separate beds, Flintstone, separate beds, a number of those earlier shows. But you, when you go back to the earlier black shows, um, Jefferson's, um, Good Times and some of those other shows, whenever they showed Cosby's, whenever they showed, and I think Cosby was one of maybe the first shows that actually showed active conversation and engagement with both Cliff and, and Claire in the bed when the kids used to come into the room, they would actually show conversation. And it was always interesting that we were able to connect um, uh visual love with authentic love as opposed to trying to show a narrative that really wasn't true. When you look at how we express love today, particularly via media, um, is there an element of too much or not? Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question. You also got me thinking, too, um, I'm, I'm reflecting back on having watched those episodes of the Cosby Show, and I can, I, can, I can conjure up images of them being in the bedroom. The thing that I really remember was how fly their pajamas were. Do you remember their pajamas? They always had, they always had like, the, like the satin joints. So I'm like, man, like I got I to gotta get me, I got to be a doctor. Like I got to go, get a brownstone in Brooklyn so I can get some of those pajamas. Like them joints was crazy. But, uh, but, um, but no, I, so I, it's interesting, right? Because I think generally speaking, there's a there's a weird sort of juxtaposition of paradox because I think generally speaking, Americans have this really weird and strange relationship with sex and media. So like we is sex is taboo in some ways because again, like you said, in, in days gone by, they wouldn't even show people who were married sleeping in the same bed. But then when it comes to black folks in media in their representation. They want to go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum and have us hypersexualized. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And so, and so, even when there's this sort of, uh, um, I don't even know what you would call it, man. Just this sort of uh, agenda or this this, this narrative of uh, really being prudish, to be honest, as it relates to sex. Mm-hmm they show us in completely different ways. Um, we were having a conversation. And so anyway, so I'm thinking about this, even in the context of a conversation I was having a few days ago about public policy and public assistance. 
So it wasn't until the 1980s when, during the Reagan administration, there was this narrative of a welfare queen where we were, again, hypersexualizing black women that the narrative started to change around public assistance and the tide began to turn so that public assistance became something that was demonized and people who were receiving it were marginalized, right? And it was only when literally the face of public assistance changed. Mm-hmm. So when people started uh, uh, conjuring up images of this so, so-called welfare queen, this, this uh, uh, mythical and erroneous narrative of a black woman who was promiscuous and uh, engaged in all types of unethical sexual behavior, only for the express purposes of having more children to siphon more money from the federal government. It was only when they were successful in convincing the broader public that that was the case, Mm. that they were successful in rolling back the amount of expenditures, federal expenditures on public assistance. Because before that, the programs were wildly popular because they were widows' pensions programs. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so again, so we have this sort of weird paradox where America simultaneously has made sex taboo, except for when it comes to black people. And then they want to hypersexualize us and stereotype our sexuality, both men and women, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and the ways in which that's connected to all types of atrocities when you really peel back the layers of American history. Mm-hmm. When you take the uh, the the interest in fear mongering and conjuring up fear of the um, again hypersexualized black man and um, creating law and policy that has an express interest in trying to control it, right? Mm-hmm. So even even when we think about uh, the history of media, uh, the the first motion picture in the United States was D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Right, right. (laughs) Way back in 1915, and for folks who've seen it, there's this sort of really, really salient and poignant portion of the film where there's a white woman being chased by uh, a black man, except it's not a black man, it's a white man in blackface, right? And if you know the movie, the movie sort of portrays uh, antebellum South after the Civil War and during the Reconstruction era, and it frames the South as sort of being taken over by, again, hypersexual, criminal, former slaves, black people. And there's this scene where this black man, white man in black face, is chasing this white woman through the forest, and the setup is if he catches her, he's going to pillage her and rape her and, and all of this business. And the woman gets to a cliff. And so she has this decision to make. Does she stand there and allow herself to be violated by this brute, right? Or does she jump to her death in order to preserve her um, preserve her uh, what's the word? Um, I, I know what I know words you're searching for. Uh, uh, um, I, I just lost my train of thought. Does she, does, she, does she jump to a death in order to maintain her virginity? Or purity is the word that purity. I'm looking for. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, of, and of course, rather than uh, experience the worst thing on earth, which is to be violated by this uh, uh, criminal and lustful uh, savage, a.k.a. a black man, she decides to essentially kill herself by, by jumping to a death. And so from the very beginning, uh, there's been a, a specific uh, agenda, and, and the media has been used to to create the type of fear that is also served as a catalyst for creating policy that is marginalized, demonized, and um, turned black people, men and women, into second-class citizens, and reinforced that through policy yeah. uh, for centuries here in our country. Yeah, you know, one of the... Um pieces of cinema that we always kind of is our go-to whenever it comes to policy, um, particularly when it comes to black love, right? It's Claudine. And it's kind of interesting that whenever we mm-hmm. talk about Claudine, we always talk about um, the social work piece of it and the policies that were in place that literally alienated men from being in the lives of women and their children, um, 
because of the government's need to want to be seen as the savior for poor black women, right? But they never, we never talk about um, Claudine's role and her adamant adamancy about not just wanting a man in her life, but needing a man in her life. Like we missed that element of the storyline that what she was fighting for was not just to have a man in her bed. She was fighting for the whole notion that it is critically necessary that I have a strong, sober man in the midst of my household with these children, right? And I think we miss that part when we talk about Claudine, because to your point, we want to talk about the sexual piece of it, which was she just wanted a man in her bed. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Because again, because the idea that her potentially only wanting a man in her bed, that only reinforces the narrative that has been created about our people as hypersexual and promiscuous, both black men and black women. But again, but to your point, uh, what's happening in that in that in that scene is that I think Claudine was played by Diane Carroll, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's happening in that scene is a rejection and the pushback on the system that says, "Here, we will provide you with these commodities only in exchange for a fracturing of your family," mm. right? Why? And so the commodities and the public assistance payments and the and the uh, the in kind benefits, as 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 they were essentially are tantamount to blood money. Right. Right. Absolutely. You only remain eligible if and when your family is fractured. And uh, as the saying goes, if the, the, the best way to uh, to kill a snake is to cut off the head. And so to whatever extent the, the man, in particular the black man, has been and should be the, the head of his family, um, that's one of, if not the best ways to, again, go about the business of advancing that agenda around fracturing a family, which is to, in America, where everything is grounded in this notion of economic essentialism, uh, put families in a position, a situation where they end up having to choose between the presence and contributions of the head of the family and the head of the household or staying eligible for public assistance within a larger context of those families having already been discriminated against, marginalized, and oppressed, which is what landed them in a position where they needed public assistance to very begin with, right? Yeah. Um, Well, it's crazy because that's what you're talking about now is, and so Dr. Rollins and I was having a conversation about research, and I was explaining to her why we chose to create the Monahan Institute um, as a way for the lion to begin to tell his story and not always have the hunter construct the narrative. And I was talking to her about how, you know, when we're looking specifically at black, when we're looking specifically at black families, um, we have to be able to, um, tell the story from their point of view and 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 where that points me to is children right so um because we don't talk a lot about how that conversation of love transitions from adults to children and so when you look at when we were growing up i'm probably i'm i know i'm past you and you probably know of the concept only because of your education not because anyone said to you boy, have you learned about the birds and the bees, right? Remember that? We always, the birds and the bees, the birds and the bees. And I often wonder, even with my children now, and I think back to the rearing of all of my children, I've never sat down and had an intentional conversation with them about, come over here, son, and let me talk to you about the birds and the bees and have a book with illustrations on it. And this is the, you know, I've never done that. And so I wonder in this new generation of outer millennials and incoming generation Zers, how is this love, how is this conversation of black love being translated now between our adult parents and our new generation Z children and how they are interpreting that. 
Yeah, so it's so it's interesting, and it's really, really interesting and timely that that you that you bring this up because uh, so I have an eleven year old, mm-hmm. and this was maybe I'm gonna say maybe three four months ago. He comes to me and seemingly out of the blue, he asks me, "Where do babies come from?" I'm like, oh, okay, wow. And so what ends up happening is so to the point that you were making in that moment, what I end up doing was reflecting on whatever it was I received, right, in terms of the family of origin and socialization around relationships and the birds and the bees and sex and so on and so forth. And I'll be honest with you, it wasn't a whole lot, just sort of like what you were saying. Um, Now, I remember being told that I needed to protect myself and uh, I was sort of cautioned against getting someone pregnant, but just in terms of like, like a real discussion or conversation, there really wasn't a whole lot of that. I think, again, because sex was taboo, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I promised myself uh, that I wasn't going to do that. And the other thing about, I think, generationally that's different now than in days gone by is that you can't keep information away from people in a contemporary context. So when my son asked me where do, where do babies come from, had I attempted to just sort of brush him off or give him some sort of a fluff answer, mm-hmm. he has a phone, he has a computer, he really wants to know, like right. he's gonna go find out, you know what I mean? And the other thing I was reflecting on was, what is it that I did when I didn't get the answers to the questions that I had? Mm-hmm. Well, I ended up turning to uh, Todd Shaw and Luther Campbell, right? That's too short and Uncle Luke, you know what I mean? And so people are going to get information from somewhere. If there's a void there, people are going to seek to fill it. Mm-hmm. And so obviously the last thing I would want was to have my son look into too short and Luther Campbell for sex education. And so I decided to sit down with him and have a, a really, really uh, specific and intentional discussion and conversation with them. And we literally started with, well, son, uh, women carry eggs, and every 28 days, one of those eggs is released from the ovaries into the fallopian tube. And I mean, a full-on discussion, right, where we're talking about uh, menstrual cycles and eggs being fertilized and erect penises and uh, uh, lubricating vaginas. And I mean, he's in, and he's in the, he's in, well, at the time, he was in the fifth grade, but he's going into the sixth grade now. But... Um, wanted to make sure that he wasn't walking around with some misnomer about uh, 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 human anatomy. Because um, it's also the case that I'll never forget, and I've talked to people about this in other platforms. But I remember I was a college, I was a, I was a sophomore in college. I went on a date with this young lady, and we went to a dinner and a movie. And so at the, at the tail end of the dinner, which we did after we went to the movies, she starts talking to me about a pocketbook. And she says to me, she says, I hope you don't think just because you've taken me out that you're gonna be able to get into my pocketbook. I didn't know what she was talking about. What is she, she kept referencing a pocketbook. What is this girl talking about? And so I finally said to her, no, like, I, like I'm not expecting you, like I asked you out, I'm not expecting you to pay for the date. Like it's fine, it's not that big of a deal. And so it was only later on that she revealed to me that when she was talking about a pocketbook, she wasn't talking about a, a pouch or a purse. She was talking about a vagina. And she was basically saying to me that uh, simply because I had uh, covered the cost of the date that I should not have had any expectation for sex. And I was like, well, first of all, I didn't. But then two, why are you 21 years old still talking about a pocketbook? What are you doing? And so the other thing I remember reflecting on at the time was, uh, when my son asked me about where it was that uh, babies came from, I didn't want him to be 21 years old talking about a, a wee-wee or, or, you know what I mean, whatever this language is. It's like, no, let's use, let's use the anatomically correct language um, so that people, so we can have an informed discussion and conversation and not have people in the dark. Um, That's funny. So yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we didn't have time. Yeah, one time I was I was dating this girl, and this was around um, um, when Naughty by Nature made the song OPP. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you remember yeah, when you that know. song came yeah. out? Everybody was like, "There's OPP, yo, you know." People were like, "I don't think." When I look back on it, people were singing it and not really recognizing what they were talking about, right? In full context. So we had gone to a fair, 
and they had a teddy bear, and on the teddy bear, it had a it had a vest on it, and it had OPP on it. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of, that's dope. I was like, let me grab this up. I scooped it up. I came over to her, and I was like, here you go. I'm like handing her the teddy bear like I'm doing something big, and she looks at it like, what is this for? I'm like, it says OPP. She's like, do you know what that stands for? I was like, She's like, do you ever listen to the whole song? I'm like, oh. and then when she told me other people's cat, right? I was like, oh. right. like we sometimes can get so caught up in music, right? That we don't totally recognize like what the messages are, which is why I want to go into this next conversation about since we're talking about um, media, we can't dismiss music in and of itself because there is no, um, you know, there, there is no uh, soft coding about what they, there's no insinuate, there's no um, uh, uh, let's get it on. You know, your sweetness right. is, you know, your sweetness is my weakness. There ain't, yeah. <laughs> there ain't none of that poetic, you know, crazy, 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 Jodeci, Casey, and Joe. There ain't none of that romantic stuff going on. This is straight, like straight, straight, no chaser. And so okay. is that does that sometimes does that when it comes to your children? Does that frighten you as it relates to your messaging about love to your son and what the media is saying to him at school? So, he's listening to that music to think for one minute that your kids ain't listening to the raw version of those songs. They getting it in somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so I, that, so I think, so to answer your question directly, yes and no. So if you injected me with truth, sir, I'm like, I was like, I'll be lying if I said like that doesn't concern me. Cause again, like, and, but, but also to your point, when I was his age, I was sneaking two live crew. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um, and what's, and what's crazy about it, I was thinking about this too. Two live crew doesn't even approach just how explicit the music is now, right? And to think about how far we've come, like that's crazy to think about. Um, and so, so yeah, so but for, for all of those reasons, that's that was another part of what compelled me to sit him down and actually have that conversation with him. Mm -hmm. You know that's, what I mean? Yeah. So, so, so in other words, I'm looking to be preemptive uh, right. and trying to make sure that he doesn't have to re rely on whatever it is that he's hearing or from whomever he's hearing it from, but he has a, a real, uh, I think a valid outlet, one that he can trust and one that he's comfortable with having that discussion conversation with mm -hmm. trying to create a type of environment around him to where, like you said, I couldn't imagine, like I can remember literally when, when not about nature came out because there's a radio edit and it was called other people's property right, right? On, <laughs> on, the, on the, on the, on the, on the radio. But right. again, but, uh, uh, not so much on the, so I can remember being in places and spaces around my parents and having, whether it be a comedian or whether it be music or whether it be TV or whatever, whatever, someone say something and it'd be funny to me, but having to hold in my laughter because to actually laugh audibly or out loud, what I would be doing is revealing that I actually knew something that I should not have known. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And so, and so making sure that, uh, again, my son, that he doesn't have to do that. Right. Again, when we have the conversation with him, son, sex is as there's nothing more natural than sex. Mm -hmm. And it won't be very long until you go through puberty and you start to notice um, young girls in ways that before you just didn't. Right. Um, like you're going to start paying a lot more attention. You're going to be. Uh, drawn to them in ways that you hadn't before, right? There'll be excitement, and we call it excitement and erection. Mm -hmm. You're going to wake up in the middle of the night, and you're, she said that's a, a, a wet dream, otherwise known as nocturnal emission. So, again, so having these conversations so that, number one, he's prepared, and then, two, he knows that he doesn't have to attempt to sneak or hide what it is that he's coming across. Because, again, like you said, there's no reason for me to believe that when he leaves this house, he's not being introduced to things by 
people in the peer group or social media or pop culture or whatever, like that would be foolish for me to believe that. Like my kid would be the one kid walking the face of the earth who's being sheltered from that. No, 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 no. So let's have a real discussion. Let's have a real conversation so that he so he's knowledgeable. And whenever the time comes, uh, not only does he have uh, the wherewithal to make informed decisions, but he also knows and clearly understands the consequences of whatever those decisions may be. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, and so again, just trying to create a space where he's able to come to me and have those types of discussions and conversations, both myself and and my wife, his mother, so that he doesn't feel like he has to rely on the streets. Right now, again, I'm not. I'm also not foolish enough to believe that he's always going to be comfortable coming with me, coming to me to, to, with these things. But again, just making sure that he knows that he can. Right, right? and then doing my due diligence to prepare him on the front end. Mm-hmm. You know, you there was a, um, and we um, have about five minutes left. But I wanted to touch on this that we we're going to have to come back, and there's going to have to be a part. There's so much stuff to department lies in this conversation around love. I didn't have any notions that we were going to hit everything today. It's not going to happen. But you had a stat in the book that talked about how 60% of um, black men have experienced some level of trauma in their lives. And that trauma um, informs um, how they see relationships and love. Um, and I, you know, I read that stat and I was like, and I just, you know, how, when you read something, you self-reflect very quickly and you're just like, okay, if 60% of black men have some level of trauma, am I part of that 60 or that 40? And you start scraping your life, trying to figure out, um, whether or not you have gone through some level of trauma. And I think many men probably will go through that exercise and dismiss a traumatic moment in their lives for the sake of not being able to, or for the sake of being able to say, nah, I've never had any trauma in my lives. But that's that, how we were brought up that masculine thing, which is not, nah, that was, you know, it was weird. Like we would say that it was weird, but it really wasn't traumatic. But then you start having to ask yourself, then why do I keep thinking about it? Like, why does it bother me? You know, why does it, you know, why does it, you know, I remember, I work for um, uh, New York State Department on Division of Housing. Um, and I was, you know, had to be like 24, 25. And um, this woman that I, I didn't work for, I didn't work for her. She just worked in an adjacent office next to us. And we were just in the hall, we were just in the office talking about something one day. Um, and, and I walked away and she just reached over and just grabbed my butt. She just full hand, just squeak, just, you know, and I kind of jumped, um, and I turned around and she was, and she was smiling and I just kept on walking, but I never spoke to her about it. She never spoke to me about it. It never went any further than that. It never, it was kind of like. I didn't respond, I guess, in the way she thought I was going to respond. And I just kind of took it and I tucked it in my pocket and I kept moving with it. But always go back to thinking about that and thinking about that kind of moment of violation, right? And so we don't think about men being violated in this area of love. Somehow or another, we believe that men are the only perpetrators of violation, Um, when it comes to love, particularly emotional. Um, When you have talked to these dads and when you have heard them talk and they talk about their traumas, what tends to be the theme when they begin to talk about their traumas? Yeah, so that's a real thing. Um, And and I appreciate you being uh, open and and, and vulnerable enough to to share that. So when when it comes to the guys in the book, that that stand around 60 percent uh experiencing trauma so what's what's interesting about that is that's just the tip of the iceberg so that's 60 percent that was folks who experienced what we would call relationship trauma mm. so that doesn't even include right people who have been physically abused and in some cases sexually abused and maybe even emotionally abused that's just people who were dealing with or wrestling with what we would call relationship trauma which is a negative experience within a context of a relationship, a romantic relationship that alters people's trajectory. 
So in other words, there was a guy who we interviewed who talked about having a girlfriend and being really, really excited. He did a couple of extra shifts at his job. He had some money in his pocket. He talked about going over to his girlfriend's house only to get there and overhear her from, so he's outside, he can overhear her in the house on the phone as he's about to knock on the door with one of her girlfriends saying that her other boyfriend had just dropped off some money and she was on her girl on the phone with her girlfriend talking about putting together a plan about where they were going to go and spend this sucker inwards money. Mm. Right. And the guy says, man, like I'm outside excited because I've done a couple of extra shifts. So I got some money in my pocket. And what he wanted to do with it, he wanted to take her out. Right. You know what I mean? And so then he talks about how it sent him into a tailspin and how later on he ended up with what he called a dog mentality. And it was sort of a kill or be killed. Like that was the framing of relationships for him for quite some time. Mm. And so he started to see women as people who, at least in his experience, will exploit him if he first doesn't exploit them. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so countless guys that we interviewed talked about having had experiences like that and the ways in which those things shaped and influenced and impacted their um, their relationship trajectories. And so, so, yeah, so that was a real thing. And what was interesting about it is we th- there's a chapter in the book on trauma, you know, w- which we unpack some of these things. But what's so interesting about that is large numbers of the men didn't even know to name their experience as trauma. It was sort of like what you were saying when the woman grabbed your butt, like it was just sort of a throwaway thing. Like you tuck it in your pocket and you keep moving, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so in a lot of cases, the guys don't even recognize or aren't even articulate their experiences as traumas. Mm. It's just this thing that happened, but it sticks with them the same way that 20, 30, 40 years later, you can still remember having that experience, standing in hallway, having that discussion. Um, and so and so guys are dealing with and wrestling with a lot. And what's unfortunate is that there's not many spaces in our uh, society where men can actually bring those things to the forefront, be vulnerable in that type of way, be affirmed. Mm-hmm. and then receive assistance to help them move beyond, right? And so there's so much stigma attached to mental health to begin with that in the world also tells men that they should be rough, tugged, strong, and, and so on and so forth. So men are reluctant to uh, ask for or receive assistance from a service underutilization standpoint. Men play a really, really big role in that. But a large part of it has to do with the fact that the society doesn't affirm men who bring those types of things to the forefront. And if and when they're men of color, it's only made worse. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and the sexual piece is a real is a real piece because we talked to a lot of guys who talked about um, not necessarily they were bullied into having sex, but but the reality that they were propositioned and felt as though their reputation was on the line if they didn't actually follow through and have sex, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's happening every single day in our country, and and and, and guys are wrestling with a lot, uh, and and don't have a lot of viable places and spaces to be able to share those things and get help uh, to to move beyond. And so as a consequence, like you said, they tuck it away, but it ends up influencing, impacting their relationship trajectories in some cases for decades. And some of those stories, we share those in the book. Mm, Wow. Listen, Dr. Perry, my brother Armand, listen, we're going to come back and we're going to dig. I I, I have my copy of the book and I, I sit down, I have, I have like several books by my men and I'll crack them open and I'll just read a chapter or I'll read a paragraph or something and then something will hit me. I'm, I have difficulty in reading because if I read something, particularly in research or in narrative that strikes me, I have to put the book down and I have to think about that. What I just read, like right now I am um, listening. I'm also an audible book reader. So I love um, listening to stories. So right now I'm listening to Will. And so, and I cannot get through this guy's book. I can't. It's like, every 15 minutes or so I have to turn it off and walk away and like think about what he just said and what he's what he's trying to articulate 
um, in his life. And the reason that I love what he's attempting to do and how he is showing himself, even in the midst of, you know, what he did at the Oscars, um, which I think is a part of his journey and a part of this unraveling of a extremely complex life, right? And trying to figure out how to strip it apart in a way that people can understand the minute portions of his life to understand him in totality. That's a Mm -hmm. difficult thing to do when your life is as traumatized as his was or any male or women for that matter, trying to get people to understand who you are by stripping your life apart and helping you or trying to get you to understand how these small pieces in my life has added up to this moment in my life where I walked up on that stage and slapped another man on national TV because I felt some way, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and, so, even, and even in the aftermath of it, him reflecting on having, having had some experiences where in his mind, he was not able uh, to, to serve in a role of protector and having that be so indelibly burned on his brain that 20, 30 years later, he felt compelled to, like you said, behave in a way that he behaved for better, for worse, for right or for wrong. But it was indeed those previous experiences that served as the catalyst, right? So it's not about judging it for, for, for better or for worse, but it's about understanding why it is that he felt compelled for whatever reason and knowing that if and when that can happen to Will Smith, it's absolutely happening to Joe and Jane public every single day. Absolutely. Tell people where they can get the book. Black Love Matters, uh, Lexington Books. It's an imprint of Roman and Littlefield. Uh, if you go to their website again, Lexington Books or Roman and Littlefield, you can get Black Love Matters, uh, Authentic Men's Voices on Romantic Relationships and Marriage. Just came out in paperback, so um, and it's also available in ebook as well. So there's a hardback, there's a paperback, and even an ebook for people who have the Kindles or whatever electronic devices are. So any of those places or any of those formats, you can get it again, Lexington Books, Roman Littlefield, Black Love Matters. Mm-hmm. And we'll make sure that we have the link on our website um, so that you can um, just simply go there to IamDadPodcast.com um, to get the link there. If you couldn't remember all that he just said, we'll make it simple for you. Um, Dr. Perry, thank you so much, bro. Absolutely. Anytime. Looking forward to the next time. Yeah, appreciate you. And I'll have to, I have to keep, I have to take a, a index card and put it in your book and write down the things that I want to touch on next week. This way I can just let you know and we can figure out how we're going to talk about it. Because this conversation around, and I know we're over time, but it's a podcast. I got time. You know, it's uh, uh, this, this whole notion of love is just, you know, for men in particular um, has become so, um, um, gray lined, right? Everything is bleeding into everything. Like there's no distinction on the difference between how I'm supposed to love myself, how I'm supposed to love my spouse, how I'm supposed to love my kids, how I'm supposed to love my life, how I'm supposed to love my job, how I'm supposed to love my every, everybody wants my love differently. And I got to figure out how to give it to them all differently. And everybody has their own expectation of what they believe my love should look like for them. For them, right. <laughs> right. And so, and I, you know, and women will say, that's me too, with me too. Yeah, but you guys, you deal with it a little better. We don't, that, you know, we got one love. That's, you know, uh, Bob Marley said, we got one love. And it looks the same way, no matter where we put it. But different people have a different expectation on what it should look like when we give it to them. And I think that the, ma- the major difference is the world doesn't create spaces and environments where us actually fulfilling that expectation is something that is affirmed and rewarded and valued, right? And so that's the key, I think. That's the thing that folks really need to understand and appreciate is that when men are doing that, again, particularly black men, when men are doing that, it's oftentimes the case that they're having to step outside of what's actually rewarded, right? And so there's a risk involved there. 
And again, so many guys in the book even talk about that, having had for them, that was their relationship trauma, attempting to show up in authentic ways and be vulnerable in the in the context of their relationships only to have it backfire on them. And so what they were being taught was that they should not do that, right? Only to have uh, subsequent relationships or relationships in the future end up deteriorating because they weren't what their partners call emotionally available, but they had been taught by their previous experiences that being emotionally available was not something that was going to be rewarded or valued, but in fact, it was something that was going to be uh, chastised and punished. Right. It's a weird paradox men find themselves in this tough for a lot of them to overcome. But again, I know we, we got to get back into that another time. So Absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you again um, for um, being interviewed and for sharing, you know, your thoughts about this book. And I think that we're going to, um, as my pastor would say, our conversations are going to bless some people uh, with respect to really kind of hearing this stuff talked out where they can kind of understand it in context to their own personal lives, both men and women. And so you will definitely be back. We will hit this um, conversation hard in February of next year for that month of love, right? <laughs> Talk about what that should look like. But thank you so much for joining I Am Dad podcast. And to all of my listeners out there who are tuning in, make sure you go to our website, IamDadPodcast.com. Sign up for our um, listserv so that when we have new episodes coming up, we can let you know that they're coming up, talk about any issues um, related to any conversations that we have, resources, all of those kinds of things with the hope of making your lives better um, as dads and for those that love our dads, helping them with the information and inspiration that you guys need to do to make your fathers um, the most essential dedicated, inspiring men in your life that they can be. Thank you so much. I'll see you next Sunday. God bless. Have a great week. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. period.